In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. The opening lines to a beautiful story. A story about us and God. It all began with an empty slate. A world without form. He was there, hovering over the waters. And he spoke. Let there be light. And it was done. He took the light and separated it from the darkness, creating day and night, and the stage was set. With the light and dark separated, he went to create the sky by dividing the water, and the land by pulling it out of the sea. Next was life, plants, trees, flowers, grass. He saw his work, and it was good. He continued. He added skies filled with birds and oceans filled with fish, lands filled with animals, and something more. He gave his first commandment to go and make more. So the earth was filled with life. And then the story zooms into us. He created this garden stage, this platform for something. Scooping his hands into the earth, he formed a human, in his own image, man. But something separated this man from the rest of creation. Something simple, something breathed, something called life. So good morning, y'all. That was a cool video, was it not? 
Um, <clears throat> my name is uh, is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff here at Church on the Trail, and and you know I've told y'all, I guess, plenty of times that we're not going to shy away from difficult conversations, and we've had plenty of those in the last eight or nine months, and we're not going to shy away from those. We're going to going to deal with tough subjects today is and in the coming weeks actually is uh is no different than that and today is going to be a different sort of message uh today and in the coming weeks going to be a sort of different sorts of messages and we're going to be in uh in genesis chapter one we're going to be in genesis a little bit of chapter two and today at least we are going to intro- introduce you to some concepts and then we're going to going to look at the very, very beginning of Genesis chapter 1. Coming weeks, we're going to look at the, the whole account of creation, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and kind of let the Lord um, unfold the significance of that for us. Now, I want to, foundational in this, though, is a couple of kind of big points. Number one is this, I'm not a scientist. I don't claim to be a scientist. I'm a pastor and I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher, but I'm not a scientist. This is not going to be a science class. It's not intended to be a science class. Uh, our intent is to walk ourselves through the, through, through the Scriptures, studying the Scriptures. We're going to bring a little logic into that. We're going to bring a little reason in that. And we're going to probably inject a little bit of science in that. But a lot of the times when I bring some science in, I'm going to bring people who are scientists into that conversation a little bit. Secondly, I'm absolutely not going to satisfy every question you have today. There's no way that I'm going to do that. And I know that what doesn't get said today uh, may very well bring up more questions. And most of those questions are going to get dealt with kind of over the coming weeks as we walk ourselves and as we study the Scriptures and there's going to be a few big words, and, and we're, we're, you know, we'll, we'll discuss those and we'll bring some meaning to those. But we're going to talk about theistic evolution. We're going to talk about naturalistic evolution. We're going to talk about day-age theory. And here's what I know. This is going to be a challenging thing for our heads and for our hearts. And honestly, my prayer has been for the last month is that, that, that God would bring the people here that need to hear this message and that hearts and minds would kind of be open. I really do believe that we are going to find the answers uh, to these questions that all of us have in the Scriptures, primarily in the Bible. And so we're going to work our way through Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and we're going to find the, the answers to the greatest questions that we have about origins in this book. To begin with, though, this morning, I want to, I want to address the concept. I want to sort of set up where this debate really is, and I think it's critical for us. As a matter of fact, I think that it's most critical for students. If you are a student, you will be indoctrinated, or you may have already been indoctrinated with evolution as if it were an absolute in, incontrovertible fact. And what you're going to find is that what I'm going to say over this week, next week, and in the coming weeks is probably going to fly absolutely in the face of everything that you have heard. Probably is. And there's where the challenge is going to be. Today we're going to set the stage for that contrast. And then we're going to get a little bit into the Scripture at the very beginning of Genesis 
chapter 1 and see what it says a little bit, what it says to evolutionary theory. This is also, it's not just important for students, it is important for all of us because understanding origins in the book of Genesis is foundational to the rest of Scripture. If Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 don't tell us the truth, y'all, then why should we believe any of the rest of the Bible? If it's not true, how can it apply to our lives? If it's not true, how how does it apply to the relationships that we have with each other? Where does human dignity come from? So what we believe about creation, what we believe about Genesis, has implications all the way through to the end of Scripture. It has implications regarding the truthfulness of Scripture. It has implications regarding the Gospel. It has implications regarding the end of human history. And all of that is wrapped up in the way that we understand origins as it's laid out in the book of Genesis. It is critical to the way that we think. It is critical to understand, for understanding origins to, to give us purpose and to give us meaning. Whether this world and this life, as we all know it, whether it evolved by chance, without a cause, or whether it was created by God, has massive implications for all of human life. And the truth is, you got two options. Either you believe what Genesis says or not. And that's not oversimplifying it. Frankly, believing in in a supernatural, creative God that made everything that we see is truly the only possible rational explanation for the universe, for life, and for purpose. And so Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I don't know how that could be said any more simply. Either you believe God created the heavens and the earth, or you, or you believe that He didn't. And if you believe that God did create the heavens and the earth, then Genesis 1 is an accurate record of that. Where the Bible speaks to something, where God speaks to something, it is accurate. The Bible's not an exhaustive history of, of every event that ever happened on the planet. The Bible's not a science book. The Bible's not a history book. The Bible's not a sociology book. But where it speaks to science, where it speaks to history, where it speaks to to sociology, it speaks the truth. And so you, if you believe it, if you believe in creation, then Genesis 1 is an accurate record of that. Or you believe that somehow we evolved out of just random chance. And so the words of Genesis 1, they speak to the incredible mind of God. He says every single thing that can be said about creation, and He says it in ten words, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And there's a well-known scientist, and I told you I'm a, if, if I'm going to speak to science, I'm going to bring some scientists into the conversation. This dude's name was Herbert Spencer, late 1800s. He died in 1903. He discovered that all reality that exists in all of the universe, it can be contained kind of in five buckets. Time, force, action, space, and matter. Time, force, action, space, and matter. Those five buckets. With that in mind, look at the words of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, that's time. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created is action. The heavens is space and the earth is matter. Time, force, action, space, and matter. So either you believe that or you don't believe that. You either believe that verse 
that that verse is accurate and God is the force, or you believe that God is not the force that created everything and you're left with chance or randomness or some sort of coincidence. Whether the world was created by God by chance, without cause, has been debated really big time in the last 170 years or so since Darwin, Charles Darwin, published uh, On the Origin of Species in the middle 1800s. But the debate comes down to this. Either you believe the book of Genesis or you don't believe it. And if you don't believe the book of Genesis, then what is it that you believe? Well, in most cases, you believe in naturalistic evolution. Species change. And there'd be some people who would believe in theistic evolution. And that is saying that God sort of launched it all, but then He just turned it over to Charles Darwin in evolution. 35 years, that's what I believed. I believed that that God and evolution could exist in the same box. Well, they can't. They can't. And so that's theistic evolution. And, and those that believe that deny the Genesis account in, is accurate. They would deny that it's accurate. And so the, these views sort of deny the, the straightforward text of the book of Genesis. So I say to you again, either you believe Genesis or you don't. And if you don't, you've got options. You can be a theistic evolutionist, what I just kind of explained, or you can be a naturalistic evolutionist. Among Christians, there are those that are theistic evolutionists. But among most of those that make up the unbelieving world, they're naturalistic evolutionists. And naturalistic evolutionists are left with this insane notion, y'all, this is foundational, that nothing plus nothing equals everything that you see. The biblical image of man as the crown of God's creation has had the very most impact, the very most significance on human dignity, on liberty, on the expansion of human individual rights, on political systems, on the development of medicine. Every other area of culture is, is, uh, is made significance by man being the crowning creation of God, compared with a humanistic viewpoint of man as an animal that evolved from a mud puddle, not made in God's image because there is no God for evolution. That outlook, that humanistic viewpoint of man as an animal, that is what has fueled dictators to exterminate millions of their citizens based on the assumption that there is no God, that there is no transcendent, person in whose image these people are created. No being to give people dignity and a right to exist beyond what some government determines. You remove God, you remove man's dignity. So we got two options, really. Either we evolved out of slime and can be explained only in a, in a materialistic sense, meaning that we are made, y'all, of nothing but just stuff. We're just made of stuff. Or we've been created in God's image. And the debate's not just, not just a biological debate. It's a spiritual debate. And it's a moral debate. And the debate gets into questions of man's dignity. It, it, as man being made in the image of God. It asks questions about the issue of control. About who is sovereign in the universe. Who's in control. It asks, is there a universal 
judge? Is there universal moral law? Is there absolute rights and wrongs? And if there are absolute rights and wrongs, well, where do they come from? And when I say absolute rights and wrongs, I mean things that are always right or always wrong, regardless of the culture and regardless of the time in history. And if those things do exist, we call those universal morals, where does that come from? You see, these are questions, y'all, and this is also foundational. These are questions that evolution intends to avoid. Evolution was invented to kill off the God of the Bible. And maybe even not because evolutionists and materialists and naturalists didn't like God as creator, but because they didn't want God as a judge. Evolution was, was invented in order to kill off the God of the Bible, to eliminate the lawgiver, to eliminate the purity of his law, and his law is this binding standard for human thought and conduct and the way that we relate to each other and the way that we act. Evolution was intended to do away with universal morality. And here's the deal, y'all. It was invented to leave people free to do whatever they wanted, to act however they wanted, because you become the ruler of you. You determine what is right. There is nothing transcendent that says right or wrong. You just get to decide what's right for you. And I mean, here's the deal. If we, if we sum this up in six or seven bullet points, these two different alternative ways to look at the world, the materialistic, the naturalistic view would say ultimate reality is just stuff. It's just impersonal matter and no God exists. But the Christian view would say ultimate reality is an infinite, personal, loving God. The evolutionist would say that, that the universe is created by chance with no ultimate purpose. The Christian view would say that the universe was created by a loving God for a specific purpose. Evolution would say that man is the product of impersonal time of chance plus matter. And as a result, as a result, man has no eternal value, man has no dignity, and man has no meaning. The Christian view would say that man was created by God in his image and is loved by God. And because man is loved by God, all men, black, white, blue, green, purple, African, Asian, American, whatever, all men are endowed with eternal value and eternal dignity and meaning. And that value does not come from themselves. That value does not come from me. That value comes from a God that transcends everything. The evolutionist view of morality says that morality is defined by the individual. You define your morality according to your views and your interests and your wants and your desires. Morality is ultimately, it is subjective because every person is the final authority for themselves. The Christian view, though, says morality is defined by God and is unchanging because it's based on God's unchanging holy character. The materialist view of the afterlife is this. It brings eternal annihilation. We're just nothing. We die and that's the end and it's over. I've told you all before, that's what my mom told me. What happens when you die? It doesn't matter, you'll be dead. It's like personal extinction. That's just the end. But the Christian view says that the afterlife involves eternal life with God or eternal separation from Him. Y'all... Christianity does not begin with Jesus Christ as Savior. Christianity begins on page one of your Bible. 
Christianity begins with Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And He did it with a purpose. And He did it with, with a destiny in mind that He determined. Understanding and believing the doctrine of creation in the book of Genesis is foundational. Y'all listen to this now. It is foundational understanding it and believing it. It is, it is foundational in that when the Bible speaks to things that it ought to be taken seriously. When it speaks to the real world, the Bible ought to be taken seriously. When it speaks to science, it ought to be taken seriously. And people say, well, the book of Genesis is just myth and legend and fantasy and allegory and, and metaphor and it doesn't speak to real facts and it doesn't speak to the real world. Well, y'all, yes, it does. It does. The Word of God is to be taken seriously when it speaks to the real world on every subject, on whatever subject it is. If we avoid dealing with what the Bible says about creation and the material universe, then there's a tendency for Christianity to kind of disconnect from the real world. And if Christianity disconnects from the real world, how can it apply to your life? How can it speak to the way that you need to treat the person next to you if it's disconnected from reality? To do that, you kind of put Scripture into some mystical kind of category in some sort of fantasy land. You start out with the book of Genesis tampering, messing around with the literal nature of that text. And you've created some, some mystical approach to Scripture. And you did it from the very beginning. Separating Christian beliefs from science. And I'm not telling you, you don't check, God don't want you to check your brain at the door. He doesn't. If the book is true, it'll stand up to any amount of pressure that you would ever put on it. And so I'm not telling you to check your brain at the door. But if you separate Christian beliefs from science, that means in the end the separation of Christian beliefs from the truth. From the truth. And that means Christian beliefs ultimately die. You can't pick up the, the, the book of Genesis and take chapter 1 and say, well, this is a fairy tale. This is not real history. This is not reality. This, is, this does not reflect a real understanding of the real world in real time and in real space. You, you, you can't do that without jacking up the rest of the message of Scripture. Creation in Genesis is foundational. It's foundational. It's where God starts His story. It's where He starts His story. And you can't change the beginning of it without impacting the rest of the story. In the Bible, God speaks, and He speaks in Genesis 1.1, and He says that He created the heavens and the earth. He's the one that speaks in Genesis 1.1. He speaks throughout the rest of Scripture, and He speaks all the way to the very end. When you mess around with Genesis, you're messing around with the Word of the living God. And you're taking the divine account of creation in real space and in real time, and you're saying that it's not legitimate. You're saying that it's a lie. And that is an assault. And it detaches the Scripture from reality. And I'll say it again. If the Scripture is a detached from reality, then how does it speak to your life? How does it have any impact on your life? How do you know right from wrong? How do you know how to treat your neighbor? How do you know any... It, the whole thing just collapses if we detach it from reality. And so look, evolution would love to do just that. Evolution 
would love to un-God God, if that's a word. It would love to, script, to strip the Scriptures of truthfulness. It wants to reject God as the lawgiver. It wants to, to reject God as the judge and as our Savior. It wants to destroy the dignity of man as created in the image of God. And it just gets ridiculous. According to evolution, man does in fact have some features that animals don't. But qualitatively, he's not any better. He has a bigger brain. Yeah, quantitatively. But qualitatively, he was not created in the image of God. Therefore, it is ethically wrong to violate the rights of other animals who are literally our brothers and sisters. That's what evolution says. Ingrid Newkirk, who founded PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And I'm going to quote some people. And when I'm quoting them, it ain't Ed's words, it's their words. Let me quote you what she said, founded the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. She said, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. There's no difference. There's no difference. Well, how stupid is that? I love dogs, y'all. I love cats. You know what? But God didn't breathe life. He breathed life into man. He breathed life into man. And that kind of idiocy happens because these people really do believe that man is just simply the end of an evolutionary chain of events and chance occurrences with no purpose and no destiny and is not made in the image of God. You remove the image of God from it and man loses all dignity and meaning. And you know what? If evolution is true, then you can't argue with them. If it's true, you can't argue with them. We're just animals. We just evolved. According to evolution, it's merely just the luck of the draw that, that man has evolved a big brain. Had certain mutations not happened, and fundamental as an aside, fundamental to evolution is that mutations make things better. The reality is that mutations don't make things better, they make things worse. But we're going to get to that in the coming weeks. Um, but for man, had certain mutations not happened and, uh, to our ancestors, and instead happened to the ancestors of the, I don't know, of the lions, we might be where they are in the zoo, and they may be sitting you know, out there, you know, and I'd be saying, hello, my name is Simba, or some craziness. Look, if man is, is, is an animal, an accident of nature, a collection of chance mutations, where's the meaning, where's the purpose, where's the dignity, where's the value? It's just gone, it doesn't exist. And so what evolution basically uh, says is that over time, it's all about giving enough time, by chance, that matter, that stuff evolved into the, into the universe. There's an evolutionist, his name's J.W. Burrow, and he wrote this in an introduction to a book that he wrote. Here's what he said. He said, nature, according to Darwin, was the product of blind chance and a blind struggle, and man, a lonely, intelligent mutation, that's what you are, you're a lonely, intelligent mutation, Man is left scrambling for his sustenance. All meaning is just removed. We're all just a blob waiting to evolve into some higher form of a blob. And that is a far cry from what this book says. That, that, that you are created in the image of a loving God. The, this evolutionary idea, it not only strips man of his dignity, of his meaning, and it's more than just stupid it is more than irrational. It's more than depressing. It's more than immoral. It's more than humiliating. It's deadly. And in our history, in our history, that was not that long ago, 
Nobody demonstrated the, the deadly character of evolution, the idea of evolution, more than Adolf Hitler. At the bottom, at the base of his belief system, fundamental to his philosophy was evolution. Eric Fromm, who wrote a book, a biography of Hitler, he said this, if Hitler believed in anything at all, then it was in the laws of evolution, which justified and sanctified his actions and especially his cruelties. Well, how does that work? Well, evolution is, one of the tenets of evolution is what? Survival of the what? Survival of the fittest. Hitler was just playing out his evolutionary role. Hitler wrote Mein Kampf in the early 20s. Mein Kampf means my struggle. That's the book Hitler wrote. Here's what he said. He said, he who would live must fight. He who does not wish to fight in this world where permanent struggle is the law of life has not the right to exist. I do not see why man should not be just as cruel as nature. And finally he said, all that is not of pure race in this world is trash. And so he destroyed the Jews and he destroyed the black folks and he destroyed the gypsies and he was helping natural selection and fulfilling his evolutionary dream. Margaret Sanger. Any of y'all know who Margaret Sanger is? Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood. What is Planned Parenthood? You think Planned Parenthood is an issue in 2019? Are you kidding me? Planned Parenthood is the leading abortion advocacy group in the United States. Abortion clinics all over the place. She founded Planned Parenthood in the very early 1900s. And you know what was fundamental and foundational in her? Darwinism. Darwinism profoundly influenced her thinking. And, and to include her conversion to and her, 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 her active support of eugenics. E-U-G-E-N-I-C-S. Write that down. I ain't got time to talk about it. We'll be here for two more hours. Look up what eugenics is. You know who else was a eugenics freak? Hitler was a eugenics freak. These are Margaret Sanger's words. She was all about, these are her words, reducing the population of the less fit, including the inferior races such as Negroes. That's what she said. Where do you think Planned Parenthood clinics are targeted? They're targeted all over lower socioeconomic areas in the United States. You think that's some great group. It's not. It's not. Evolution, buying into that lie, is foundational in that. Another evolutionist wrote Essays of a Humanist in 1964. He said this. He said, evolution is the most powerful, most comprehensive idea that's ever risen on earth. And you know what? He's right. It is the single greatest lie that, is, that the world has ever known. Because it seeks to eliminate the Creator. It seeks to eliminate the need for a Creator. People can just avoid God altogether. And Darwin himself had major struggles with his own work. If you read anything he, he, he wrote, you would see the doubts that are in there. For example, he says in the sixth chapter of his book, Origin of a Species, he says, long before having arrived at this part of my book, a crowd of difficulties will have occurred to the reader. Some of them are so grave that to this day I can never reflect on them without being staggered. In the chapter on instinct, he conceded that such simple instincts as bees making beehives, he said, would be sufficient to overthrow my whole theory. And then he said to think of the eye, the human eye. These are his words now. 
To think that the eye could evolve by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd. He said that. In the chapter on the flaws in the fossil record, he complained about the complete lack of missing links in all of the geological records. He says that that is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. In other words, he was at least honest enough to say that the thing doesn't make sense. Darwin wrote in his personal letters that he was deeply conscious of his own ignorance. In these letters he wrote about having awful misgivings of having, these are his words, having deluded myself and devoted myself to a fantasy. But Darwin was determined to escape from a personal God at all costs. These are his words now. He said that I am determined to escape from design and a personal God at all costs. Y'all, if something looks designed, it's probably designed. So let's I want to set the record straight. This is all about getting rid of God. The God of the Bible, the authority of Scripture and the implications that it has. And even Christian people who want to go to Genesis, I don't believe you have the liberty to tell us that Genesis 1 doesn't mean what it says. And I just want to put that little nugget in perspective. I want to get a little philosophical for a minute. I think you'll enjoy this. Just hold on and, and just track this with me. In the end, the evolutionists say that things happen by chance. We get rid of the God of the Bible, we get rid of the Creator, and we're left with chance. And I've read this word chance over and over again in, in reading um, the writings of these people and, and the myth that drives the whole evolutionary process, the entire unbiblical, illogical, immoral idea of evolution, the myth that drives it is the myth of chance. Chance becomes the cause. Because they don't want God to be the cause, but they've got to have some kind of cause so the cause they make is chance. Let me tell you something about chance. Chance don't exist. Chance is nothing. Chance is a word that is used to explain something else. Chance is not an action. Chance is not active. Chance doesn't make anything happen. It, chance has been elevated from nothing to everything, and somehow we're supposed to believe that, that chance makes everything happen. I mean, that is so ate up with problems, I don't know where to start. How do you get the initial stuff that chance is supposed to act on? Where does the clay come from to make the pot? If chance is what's acting on it, which it can't because chance is nothing, where did the initial stuff come from? Well, you'd have to say, well, chance made it appear. You know what? That sounds so ridiculous, and that is the fundamental foundation for evolution. And it's illogical and it's irrational. Logic would say, oh, there's a universe. Hmm, hmm, I think somebody made it. There's a building. Hmm, I think it must have had a builder. There's a guitar. I don't think it just fell out of the sky. Somebody probably made that guitar. And so there's a universe more complex than a building, more complex than a guitar. Somebody who's very powerful and very intelligent made it. And you say, no, 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 no. Chance made it. Listen, folks, that don't make any sense. Just check logic at the door and you're left with a myth. And the enemies of myth are evidence the best evidence and God-given reason. So I'm telling you to be an evolutionist and believe that chance makes things happen. You've got to do two things. You've got to reject the evidence and you've got to be irrational. But if you love your sin enough, that's what you'll do. You see, if you can just eliminate the evidence 
and get rid of God-given logic. And those two things are the essence of real science. If you can get rid of those things, then, then myths just run wild. And that's what's happened over the last 170 years. If chance rules, God can't rule. Chance unseats God. The very existence of chance rips God away from His throne. If chance as a force exists, then God is ungodded. And so either there is a God who created the universe, who sovereignly rules and controls, or there's not. If chance exists, it just destroys God's sovereignty. And if He's not sovereign, He's not God. And if He's not God, then there is no God and chance rules. So when scientists fictitiously attach power and action to chance, listen carefully. They have put reason and real science to the curb. And now they're pulling rabbits out of a hat and they've entered into fantasy land. George Wald, who has won the Nobel Prize, brilliant man. Here's what he said. I say brilliant man. What I'm getting ready to tell you sounds stupid, but, but, but brilliant man, Nobel Prize winner. He says, listen carefully, carefully to this. He says, one has only to wait. Time itself performs the miracles. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible, the possible becomes probable, and the probable becomes certain. What kind of mumbo-jumbo is that? I mean, listen to that. Given enough time, the impossible becomes possible, the possible probable, and the probable certain. That's just meaningless. Self-creation is absurd. No matter, no matter how much time you give it, because chance doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. What would you say if, if this, is, this is, evolution would ask you to believe that if I just took all of this metal and just dropped it on the floor, if I did it enough times, I would have a pocket watch. If I did it for a hundred billion years, over and over and over, that one of the times, Stephen's going to get so mad that I did that. But if I did it over and over and over, that a pocket watch would show up. Or, or, or evolution would have you to believe that if you took a hundred thousand Scrabble letters and you just threw them up over and over for a hundred billion years, that one of the times when they all landed, it'd be Shakespeare's Hamlet would be looking in front of you. How dumb is that? But that is, what, that is what it would ask you to believe. And I know, look man, I know this is stretching our brains a little bit, but that's a good thing for us to do. And I know this has been a very different sort of message. But we need to do this every now and again. And I did say a little while ago, I said that being a Christian does not begin with making Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. It begins on page one of this book. The gospel is simple. It, the gospel is totally simple. But it begins with that you were amazingly, lovingly, with dignity, created by a God who earnestly and honestly desires to be in a relationship with you. That is where the gospel begins. He wants to be in a relationship with you for eternity. He wants to be in a relationship with you. That fellowship was broken by sin in the garden. In what book? In Genesis chapter 3. We broke that relationship with sin. And that sin has got to be paid for. 
And so the gospel begins with the desire for God who loved you and loves you to be in an eternal relationship with you. The sin broke it in the garden. But He figured out a way to restore that relationship in the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and was resurrected three days later. We talked about that last week. That that resurrection was a real event in real time and in real space and in the real world. He really walked out of the grave alive. He really died on the cross. He really was alive when He walked out of that grave. And so it begins with the fellowship in the garden. And we broke it. And He restored it in the person of Jesus Christ on that cross. And look, all you have to do is repent of that sin and believe. Believe what? What's the content of our faith? That Christ died on that cross to take care of that sin. And the One that created you, the One that breathed life into you, you do know that you are not an animal. Contrary to what science classes in the schools tell you are not an animal. You are a human being who is lovingly created by God who wants to be in a relationship with you forever. And so the One that created you will save you right here and right now. He will save you. Y'all join me in prayer. Lord, in the beginning, in the beginning You created the heavens and the earth. You tell us that just as clear as a bell. Father, my prayer is that we would all get our hearts and our heads right this morning. Lord, it makes me so sad to think that for the last couple of hundred years, people have tried to ungod You. People have tried to destroy You. To eliminate You as Creator. Lord, it makes me so sad that so many people have bought into the lie of evolution. We grieve, Lord, because the consequences of such a life is eternal separation from You. Lord, we, we, I beg You to let us take your word the way that you intended it. Believing that you said exactly what you intended to say. And so lead us, Father, as we think about these things in the coming weeks, as we talk about it at home with our kids, as we talk about these things at home with our, with our parents and our brothers and our sisters. Lord, I would beg you to let us see you as you intend to be seen. That Let us have a strong Lord, a firm foundation in Your Word. Lord, let us see You as our Creator, as our Redeemer. And so, Lord, I would ask You that in the coming weeks that You would reveal Yourself even more and more as the Creator. Lord, I lift this church family up to You today. Lord, I pray that that You would change hearts and that You would change minds and that You would let us understand that all men are created equal and all men have dignity and all men have worth and value. And Lord, I know there are people here today that they don't think they have value. Part of that reason is because they bought into the lie of evolution. They're just an animal. But Lord, if You breathe life into us, we have Your dignity. And so Lord, my prayer is that You will change hearts and minds right here and right now. In Jesus' name, amen.